So tonight, I'd like to share some reflections on um, three fruits of death contemplation. Not just one, not just two, but three. Wow. So namely, I'll, I'll mention what they are, and then I'll go through them one by one. So the first one, not surprising, it's preparing for our death. It's preparing for our death. Preparing for death. The second fruit, of course I'll say a lot more about each of these, second fruit is awakening to life, is the part after the slash that we've been talking about. Contemplating death slash awakening to life. So living fully, living life fully, inspired with Samvega. And the third fruit, which we've kind of started to talk about, and I like to refer to a little more, which is actually weaved um, in the contemplations already, is awakening, liberation, nibbana, freedom, the deathless, the whole shebang. This death contemplation practice is awakening practice. It's the real deal. So with that, now I'd like to go through each of them and speak about these three different fruits, these different dimensions, aspects of death contemplation. So preparing for our death, as we've been talking about it, practicing, letting go, preparing, preparing, so that we're not afraid in the moment of death. Maybe, even maybe, I'll say something far out. Maybe we can even enjoy the process. Who knows? Maybe it's really fun, this process of stepping into the mystery. Really, who knows? That don't know mind, that don't know mind, so that we can prepare not to be afraid, but to be fully present with whatever it may be, right? What the caterpillar calls the end of the world, the, mat, the, mat, um, the master calls a butterfly. End of the world, ah, we're going to die. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Really? Don't know. As San Sanim, okay, you, you didn't do it, Eugene. So I'm going to try to... This is, this is an imitation, Eugene, doing an imitation of San Sanim, the Zen master, who used to say, don't know. Don't know. Okay, let's pull it off. Don't know. Serious teaching, man. Don't know mind. So, yeah, so, so we're prepared for the moment of death and live our life without fear and and have grace in the moment of that, both for ourselves as well as those we love. We can support them through our dying with, with, non, with not being afraid. And one person said in one of the practice meetings, and I love that, that um, you know, parents teach their children about, about so much when they're growing up, but one thing we don't teach our children is how to die, 
What if we could teach our children how to die through dying gracefully and not being afraid? The same way my mom taught me how to die. She was not afraid. And also another way of preparing is that if we're not afraid, the moment of death, it is said that it can be a moment of liberation in and of itself. Aside, besides this practice, the death contemplation being a liberating practice, which I'll talk about as number three, but also the moment of death itself, it is said that it can be the ultimate letting go, the, the teachings to Anatta let go, let go, let go, let go, let go, let go. I'd like to share something about, about this experience of near death with Mingyur Rinpoche. Mingyur Rinpoche, um, he's a well-known uh, Tibetan teacher and he, um, a few years ago, he took off um, to go on what turned out to be a four-year-long four wandering retreat. So he just wandered off, didn't take a passport, didn't take money, nothing. He just started to wander um, in, in India and other places. Um, and that was his practice. It was supposed to be three years, but ended up being four years. And um, there was an interview with him in... Um, in the uh, uh, Lion's Roar magazine. So I'm going to read a, a, a part of it. What was it like to go from being an important Buddhist teacher living in comfort in a monastery to an anonymous sadhu, the ascetic Hindu yogis who beg and live on the streets of India? He says, I had a strong determination to be on the streets, but I was, I was naive to think I could live on the streets right away. It took me a while. Giving up my identity as a monk was one thing, and of course, I also had to give to, to, to let go of my desire for comfort, food, and the basic necessities of life, even the desire to be safe. It was a, way, it was a good way to practice my meditation on letting go. Now that's some serious letting go. But there is more. The interviewer asks, what was the best experience you had? Remember the question. What was the best experience you had? It was actually a near-death experience. I had in Kushingar, Kushinagar, the holy place where the Buddha died, not long after I started my retreat. I got very sick with vomiting and diarrhea. And one morning, my health was so bad, that I was sure I was going to die. When I got sick, it felt like I went through some kind of wall of solid attachment to my body, my comfort, my robes, and even the idea of Mingyur Rinpoche. I slowly let go, let go, let go, let go. In the end, I even let go of myself. I thought, if I'm going to die, Okay, if I'm going to die, no problem. At that moment, I didn't have any fear. I had some kind of dissolution 
as they call it in the texts, and lost touch with my physical body altogether. Then I had a wonderful experience. There was no thought, no emotion, no concept, no subject, no object. Mind was clear and wakeful, like a blue sky with the sun shining, transparent and all-pervasive. It's very, very difficult to describe. I cannot really put it into words. It, it cannot really be put into words. Then at a certain point, the thought, quote, okay, this is not the time for me to die. I, I had the thought, okay, this is not the time for me to die. This was somehow related to compassion mind. Then I could feel my body again, and I opened my eyes. I stood up to get some water and suddenly became unconscious and collapsed. I woke up in a local clinic with a glucose drip in my arm. The next day, I recovered and left the clinic. Interviewer asks, what happened then? After this experience, my mind felt so fresh and my meditation really improved. I could appreciate everything. All resistance was gone and I felt like I was one with the environment. I could go on the streets and rejoice in everything. I didn't face any big problems after that. So who knows? Who knows? Who knows what it's like? Who knows? So this part of the talk, the next part I'll be presenting to you, be speaking about rebirth, as requested. I'm going to explain everything about rebirth. Just kidding. I'll speak a little bit about rebirth, and also a little bit about NDE, near-death experiences, as I just shared with Mingyu Rinpoche's experience. And with these two topics, I'm presenting them to you, not for you to believe anything. I don't want to convince you. That's not my goal. I, want, I, I invite all of you to hold everything with a don't know mind, as I hold them with a don't know mind. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe, maybe not. But a death, a Buddhist death contemplation retreat is probably not complete without mentioning these two topics, just for our consideration. Again, there is nothing to believe here. So I want to go into near-death experiences next, actually, since we're on the topic, and we just read Mingyu Rinpoche. So I've been fascinated by them, and, and maybe it's because my mom had one, and she told me about hers. So I've read hundreds of accounts of near-death experiences, and... There is a um, Dutch author and researcher in the field of near-death studies, and his name, he's a cardiologist at uh, Utrecht University. Um, and he's been collecting, uh, his name is Pim van Lommel, P-I-M, space V-A-N, space L-O-M-M-E-L, if you want to go check him out later. 
and uh, he's been a cardiologist at a hospital for 26 years and collected lots and lots of, he's written a book and there are lots of interviews with him online about what he has observed about people that he has resuscitated coming back. So that's an interesting resource. And then I decided, you know, I'd like to just play actually um, a, a 10 minute segment of a TEDx talk for you by Dr. Thomas Fleischmann, who has been an emergency physician. Here's a little bit of his bio. Since 1982 and since 2005, he's been a director of emergency medical units in Germany and Switzerland. He's written books, has given talks, academic papers. So, and he's um, seen 2,000 human beings die. Um, and he's brought a bunch of them back to life because he's an ER physician. So this guy has got creds. <laughs> so with that, I am going to switch. We all have different genders. We have different ages. We have different personalities. And we have different lives. There's only one thing we all have in common. We will die. For every one of us, the moment will come when our heart stops beating, when our lungs stop breathing, and when our brain activity ceases. We are now dead. Now, can we look what's happening to us beyond death? Can we have a glance what happens to us, what we will experience shortly after we have died? Actually, we can. We can look beyond death. Because of all those people we bring back successfully, we resuscitate successfully, 20% in the Western countries and more than 30% in the Eastern countries report something to us which we call near-death experiences. Those near-death experiences are reported all over the world. And those reports show striking similarities and reveal a pattern. This means death sets in, and those people who have a near-death experience, the first phase is there's a sudden change. And from one instant to the other, all pain is gone. All anxiety is gone. All fear is gone. All noises are gone. And there's just peace, calmness, and tranquility. Some report joy. And quite a number report something startling. There's an insight. The insight, I am dead now. This is what we call death. And this insight is there without any anxiety. The second phase of the near-death experiences is, again, a sudden change. And those people report that they are floating above themselves. They are floating above themselves, see them themselves lying down on the stretcher, see us emergency physicians and emergency nurses trying everything to bring them back. They see from above what we are doing and they can listen what we say. The personality of the person who is gone is still the same, but they have left their body. We call this out-of-body experience. And what is annoying to us is that those people actually can describe 
what we did and can report what we said when they come back. We have no explanation for this. And I cannot offer any explanation to you because there's no brain activity at all. And we all feel to build a memory, there has to be at least a little bit of brain activity. But there is no brain activity. We do not have a scientific explanation for this, but we know this phenomenon is there. In the next phase, there's again a certain change. And in the third phase, those people who have a near-death experience describe that they are in a dark, confined space. There's complete blackness. And 98% to 99% of all those people who have a near-death experience describe this uh, being in a dark, confined space as comfortable, as pleasant, as warm and soothing. But 1% to 2% of all those who have this near-death experience in this stage describe it as frightening. 1% to 2% say there are terrible noises, terrible smells, and terrible creatures. And what those 1% to 2% tell us resembles strongly the pictures by the medieval artist Hieronymus Bosch. And one might suggest that Hieronymus Bosch had a near-death experience or a vision of a near-death experience. But once again, this is only 1% to 2%. 98% to 99% describe it as pleasant. And what may be comforting is that a certain proportion of those 1% to 2% who describe it as unpleasant say it later turns into a pleasant event. Now, this unpleasant uh, near-death experiences in this third phase of the experience are not linked to any personality or to any religion. I used to say um, if we could show that, let's say, Catholic people would have no uh, unpleasant uh, death experiences and Protestants had, then we would have billions for our research in the death events, but this is not the case. We don't have any predictor for this. Now comes the fourth stage. And the fourth stage means out of this complete blackness, a light begins to shine. This light is far away. This light is very warm, very bright, very attractive. And towards this light, out of the blackness, a tunnel is starting to form. And those people are strongly attracted towards this light and start to fly towards this light. And this light gets lighter and brighter and closer. And then comes the last phase of the near-death experience. Only 10% of those who have a near-death experience reach this last phase. In this last phase, once again, there's a certain change and there's a beautiful surrounding, beautiful colors, some say beautiful music, and a feeling of unconditional love. In this last phase, it may happen that those people who have a near-death experience have a flash forward through the whole life, starting from their birth over all major events in their life to their death. Not everyone has this, but some describe it. Some describe that they meet in this last phase relatives who have died before and are greeted by them. And some of them report, not all of them, but some of them report a being made out of light. And this being made out of light oozes out 
unconditional love to them and they feel very, very warm and happy to be in this place. But half of those who are in this last stage of the uh, near-death experience say that they, at this point they decided to come back, mainly because they feel that there is a task in their life which is not fulfilled yet and has to be fulfilled. The other half tells that either the relative or the being out of light tells them to go back because there is something which has to be done still in life. Once again, I do not have any scientific explanation for that. We just know that it is there. All these phases, all these uh, experiences are well described and occur all over the world. Whilst this is happening, we emergency physicians and emergency nurses do everything we can to bring these people back. We do everything we can to bring these people back. Resuscitation by live people is easy. Call for help and push hard, push fast in the center of the chest. That's all. Do that until the ambulance is there. For us emergency physicians, resuscitation is a very complex and complicated task. So we have to know a lot to resuscitate people properly. At the present, we can bring back 7% of those we try to bring back, hopefully more in the future. Now comes something very interesting. Those people who we bring back and had a, a near-life experience reveal certain personality changes after that. And those we bring back and do not have had a near-death experiences do not show these personality changes. The difference is very significant. The personality changes are people who have a near-death experience are after this near-death experiences more empathic, they are more social-oriented, they lose their interest, may lose their interest in materialistic values, they are more spiritual, not more religious, but more spiritual, and what is very, very interesting is they completely lose their fear of dying. 98 to 100 percent, up to the different studies, of all those who had a near-death experience completely lose their fear of dying. Now, how do I dare to talk to you about this topic? I'm not an expert in dying, I'm still alive. I'm not an expert in, I may be called an expert in bringing people back. This is my job, this is too for many years now. I never had a near-death experience of my own, but when I started to study near-death experiences, What happened to me is that I found everything familiar. Everything, each phase, each twist, each turn sounded very familiar to me. So if I had known this all before, there might be an explanation for this. Science knows a phenomenon which is called empathic near-death event. Neopathic near-death event occurs if someone is there at the moment of the death of a very close, beloved a family member or a relative. If someone is there at the moment of death of someone who is very close to him and dies, one might suggest that this person shares his near-death event experience with the person who sits next to him. Now, I told you at the beginning, 
I was with more than 2,000 humans when they crossed the line from life to death and died. And maybe over the years, at any point in time, those started to share their near-death experiences with me. And over the years, I developed exactly the same personality changes as those who had a near-death event, although I never had one of myself. This includes that I completely lost every fear of dying. I know it's nothing to be afraid of, not at all. And this, my dear friends, is a message I would like to share with you today. And maybe sometime, when we meet on the other side, then tell me whether I told you wrong today or right. So just to say, I love this guy. <laughs> He's just so deadpan, you know, so scientist, you know, scientist. And yet he's talking about what he's observed without any assumption. So I love this guy. And for those of you who want to check him out later, I'll, I'll tell you his name again. It's um, Thomas Fleischmann, F-L-E-I-S-H-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Um, and you can find him easily on YouTube. So in the past, I past retreats I've talked about NDEs myself but when I found this I, I just love this guy he just speaks so clearly about what he has personally observed I want to share a quote from you uh, a, a quote with you from from um, a woman whose name is Anita Murjani and um, she had a pretty extensive near-death experience um, you know normal woman um smart um, um, it, she, it's clear that she was not into fame anyway so the name of her, her book is Dying to Be Me My Journey from Cancer to Near Death to True Healing and, and Anita Morjani um, she had um, I think stage 4 metastatized cancer and, and she has the, the, um, this near death experience and comes back and within a week or two she's completely healed, all the tumor goes away, which is statistically impossible with, with what ha happened to her. Anyway, very, very interesting medical case. Her case has been reviewed by various doctors. She says, in my NDE state, I realized that the universe, that the entire universe is composed of unconditional love. And I'm an expression of this. Every atom, molecule, quark, and tetraquark is made of love. I can be nothing else because this is my essence and the nature of the entire universe. Even things that seem negative are all part of the infinite, unconditional spectrum of love. I'd like to say a little bit about um, about rebirth while we're in this don't know mind space don't know don't know so again who knows who knows just a clarification rebirth is not 
the same as reincarnation. So reincarnation, which is the the um, uh, is part of some of the um, uh, Indian. Um, I'm trying to forget. I remember the the uh, religions. Um, other religions other than Buddhism. So Buddhism believes in rebirth and other, some other religions re- believe in reincarnation. I just want to explain what the difference is. So with reincarnation, there is an atta, there is a self, there is a center that gets reincarnated. So it's the self that keeps going through life after life after life. With rebirth, it's not the same essence. It's the karmic potentiality that keeps moving forward life after life. So I've come up with a metaphor to make this more understandable, more palatable. So imagine a billiard ball that's moving. It's a, let's say, green billiard ball, okay? It's moving, it's moving. Now it gets here and then it gets a dab of paint. Now it becomes a red billiard ball. It's the same billiard ball moving from one life to the next life. It just is changed color. That's reincarnation. Same ball, different lives, okay? Rebirth, billiard ball comes, it's moving. It's, it's a, you know, same, say, green billiard ball. It's coming, moving pretty fast. It hits another billiard ball, okay? It's not the same billiard ball anymore. That's, that's moving, okay? The first case, it was the same billiard ball in motion, right? The second case, it's a different billiard ball. And what gets transmitted is the kinetic energy. Think of the kinetic energy as the karmic potentiality that gets the second life going. So just to leave that. So you don't have to believe in rebirth. Um, and... I'll share with you how I hold it in a moment. But before that, I wanted to say a few words about um, there is a researcher, a a well-respected researcher actually, called Ian Stevenson, who's done a lot of research on um, past lives, memories of children. And he was a Canadian-American psychiatrist and um, worked at the University of Virginia Medical School for 50 years. And uh, for period of over 40 years, he um, traveled extensively and um, investigated 3,000 cases of children around the world who claimed they remembered past lives. And he was pretty thorough in his research, very interesting guy, well-respected academic. And there are also cases of, um, the most interesting cases I thought, and I've looked into this stuff, is where there are birthmarks of a young child that remembers being killed in a particular way. And, th- and it, in his research, he's uh, gotten the post-mortem reports of the person who actually died and how they died um, and mapped the, the way, the, you know, the, the injury of the dead person to this child's um, wound or ch- child's birthmark. Um, and there have been 49 cases where there are post-mortem reports and medical documents and 88% concurrence of the pigmentation in skin and birthmark. And there's some interesting photographs. There's one case of this young kid remembering that he was um, killed by a, a, um, 
uh, rifle at, at close range, and, and he has a pigmentation here at his chest, and and having collected the cor um, the coroner's report, the postmortem report, you know the place of the um, place of the wound, the uh, gunshot is the same. Anyway, um, again, who knows? Who knows? Don't know mind. And what's interesting to me is you might. Be, you're probably familiar with Carl, Carl Sagan, the astronomer, and um, being a luminary astronomer, Carl Sagan is also a founding member of a group that has set out to debunk unscientific claims. Uh, you know, he's a pretty serious debunker of claims of supernatural. You know, Carl Sagan just shoots them down pretty well. So in his book, um, The Demon haunted, demon haunted World, he says, and I quote, there are three claims in the parapsychology field which, in my opinion, deserve serious study. The third of which is that, that young children sometimes report details of a previous life which upon checking turn out to be accurate and which they could not have known about in any other way other than reincarnation or rebirth. So when I saw that Carl Sagan, the famous debunker, is like, hmm, I debunk everything, but there are three things, and one of them is, is this case of children having memories of past lives. There is something there worth considering. So um, again, who knows? And for me, the position that I have is this, this world is so much more mysterious and amazing than then I can claim to know everything about it. So I can't claim to know that there is no rebirth, no um, no whatever, and I cannot claim that there definitely is. I just don't know, but I'm open. I'm open to, to a life that's much more amazing and mysterious than the limited four dimensions that I'm aware of in this world. So just sharing these for your consideration. So I took a lot of time with the first one, so we'll blow through the second two. Just kidding, I might go a little over time. So the second part, um, the second fruit of, of death contemplation, awakening to life. As it's been coming up in our contemplations, um, it's one thing that comes up for, for me, one of my death contemplation songs is, is a song by um, the artist Dido, um, My Life is for Rent. Is anyone familiar with that? Yeah. The lyrics are something like, but if my life is for rent. So this idea that my life is for rent, isn't that interesting? But if my life is for rent and I don't learn to buy, well, I deserve nothing more than I get because nothing I have is truly mine. It's a Dharma contemplation. I'll leave that with you and I might end the talk with that because hearing that, nothing I have is truly mine. Consider that. Nothing we have is truly ours. Even our memories, as it was mentioned earlier today in the hall, all the things that have happened to us in our lives have already passed. They're, they're, they're not ours to keep. There's, you know, 
there's nothing more than really this moment, the hologram of this moment's existence. You know, all the past is really arisen and, and passed away already. There's nothing here to hold on to. What is there to hold on to? Ajahn Chah says, but when I know that this glass is already broken, every minute with it is precious. When you know the the glass is already broken, it's already broken, every moment with it is precious. And we learn to let go through this practice, we learn to let go. And it's not so much that we learn to let go as we've been discussing and exploring. Things or it lets go of us. And I love the teaching that, that um, was shared today by Eugene, the, the, the Devi teaching, deeply touching with full knowing. That's what allows the letting go because we don't let go. We, we can't let go. It's true. You've probably realized the only way you can let go is to really know, touch fully the dukkha of holding on. If I'm holding this thing, if I'm holding on to this really tight, I'm clinging. If I don't notice, like, oh yeah, it's, I, I love holding on to this. But if I really fully touch the act of grasping with my full awareness and the pain, the pain of grasping, the pain of doing this thing, it's after a while my mind will realize, you know, I don't want to hold on. It will let go on itself. It's not so much that I have to let go. Letting go will happen on its own. So bring attention to the dukkha in the clinging the pain in hanging on, the suffering in the hanging on. Let me give an example. And this is something that my mind let go of. There was, there was a case with, a, with someone I was, I was really angry about some time ago. And my mind would pick it up and be really angry about it. And then I would notice, oh, gosh, that's painful. Here we go again. I would put it down. And then my mind would pick it up. Oh, that's so painful. After a while, the next time my mind picked it up, it's like, oh, that is so painful. Noticing the pain, my mind just dropped it. It let go on its own. I didn't have to do anything. And the thought came up was, you know, I don't want to go there anymore. It's just too painful. It's no fun. The mind didn't want to go there. It let go on its own. All I had to do was notice the pain in the anger, not the joyousness, the fun of anger, because energy of anger, it's invigorating. Have you noticed? You feel alive when you're angry. It's, it's what's called, anger is, it's, is called, um, it's the tip, it's, it's sweet, tipped, and poisoned root. The tip of it is sweet, Arr self-righteousness. I'm right. They're, they're wrong. Oh, it feels so juicy. I feel alive. But ew. In the meanwhile, you're just poisoning yourself. It just feels icky. So if you tune into the, the juicy, you know, the, the honey part of it, you'll never let go. You'll just be in anger all the time. If you tune into underneath, 
if you touch, if you fully with your awareness, if you fully with your awareness touch the pain of it, your mind will let go. You don't have to do it yourself. So, contemplating death. As we talked about, it brings up some vega, spiritual urgency. You can bring up gratitude. Gratitude can arise. As many of you have talked about it in groups and in the hall, gratitude can arise for everything, even for the suffering you have, even for pain, as someone mentioned in the hall. You can be grateful for pain in the body. So gratitude, gratitude is one of the the benefits of death contemplation for in the way of living, of awakening to life. Another is, another is forgiveness, is another aspect of letting go. In the Dhammapada, a famous verse, hatred never seizes through hatred. By love alone it is healed. This is This is an ancient and eternal law. Realizing that all men must die, then why quarrel? I love that line. Realizing that all people must die, why quarrel? There's something about contemplating death that we're not going to be here. That just, some quarrels seem petty when we realize the limitedness of our time, of our resources of time on this earth. We don't want to waste it quarreling. And with quarrels, letting go, forgiveness. And forgiveness is actually a a practice that becomes quite important when we contemplate death because we don't want to have unfinished business. And what comes up naturally, universally, not just in Buddhism, it actually comes up universally at the end of life for people, is a desire to be forgiven and to give forgiveness. It becomes very important. I know that that has been true for the, for the loved ones passing that I've been a part of. And... You know, there are three aspects to, three dimensions of of forgiveness practice. I just wanted to actually read read it for you briefly and just let it wash over you. If you would just close your eyes for a moment and be in your meditation posture. The first aspect of the forgiveness practice, and I will post this, is about asking for forgiveness. Just let this land. In any way that I have harmed you, knowingly or unknowingly, by thought, word, or action, I ask for your forgiveness as much as is possible in this moment. Second part, in any way that I have been harmed by you, 
knowingly or unknowingly, by thought, word, or action. I offer you forgiveness as much as is possible in this moment. The third part. In any way that I have harmed myself, knowingly or unknowingly, by thought, word, or action, I offer myself forgiveness as much as is possible in this moment. This, the fourth aspect is much more universal, and I'd like to bring that in with credit to Larry Yang for this formulation. It's basically forgiving things as they are, causes and conditions. Here we go. In any way that I have been unable to be with and respond skillfully to the pain and suffering of the world, my own pain and that of others, May I come to accept pain, suffering, confusion, and ignorance to be part of the journey, my own journey, and the journey of others. I offer forgiveness for the way that things are and have been, as much as is possible in this moment. You can open your eyes. Letting go, forgiveness. I'd like to take a few minutes to, to talk about the last aspect and skipping some things. So the third the third fruit of contemplating death. Maranasati is a practice of liberation, freedom, awakening, nibbana, whatever you want to call it, for direct direct path to awakening. So through this practice, we get to see what's called the three marks of existence, the three marks of existence, anicca, dukkha, anatta. I'll speak about them in a moment. And the practice of vipassana, insight practice, actually in, in a sutta, is described as seeing these three marks of existence, seeing anicca, dukkha, anatta. Anicca is impermanence, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, anatta, not, not self, not no self, as we discussed earlier today, not self, impersonality. So with this practice of death contemplation, of course we get to see anicca, impermanence, in big ways, in little ways. Big and small, all over the place. We get to see deaths, we get to see goodbyes, losses, divorces, moving away, loss of friendship, loss of contact. There's all kinds of deaths. And we get to see the big impermanence, which is death, the ultimate impermanence. You get to see impermanence, the arising and passing away in all its forms, in so many forms. Moments arising and passing away, memories, moments of life, 
When you're not a teenager anymore. You're not a child anymore. It's all arisen and passed away. Arising and passing. Contemplating anicca, anicca, anicca. You've all been contemplating anicca, anicca. You've been contemplating anatta, not self. Also, another aspect of anatta is, is sunyata, which is emptiness. They're different, they're, um, different sides of the same coin, anatta and sunyata, emptiness. You've been contemplating that by noticing how impersonal, how impersonal death is, how ungovernable, uncontrollable this body is. You can't stop it from aging or dying or decomposing. It's impersonal. It's just nature. This body is nature. We are nature. It becomes very clear. We are nature. It becomes very clear. And you also get to, you've, you've gotten to contemplate dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, the unsatisfactoriness, or, or the plain old, the, the painfulness, sorrow, lamentation, with death contemplation. As Woody Allen put it really well, this aspect of unsatisfactoriness, he says, life is full of misery, loneliness, and suffering, and it's all over much too soon. I like that. It's too funny. Life is full of misery, loneliness, and suffering, and it's all over much too soon. We feel that way sometimes, don't we? (laughs) And this practice, this contemplation, contemplating dukkha, both allows us to let go, as I was talking about earlier. When you really bring your mind, when it's the full awareness of the unsatisfactoriness or the pain of clinging, ah, your mind opens up and lets go. And also, this contemplation opens up the heart. When you're really feeling and holding pain, the heart opens up to compassion, compassion for yourself and compassion for others. You realize... We're all in this boat of humanity together. We all age. We all lose loved ones. We all mourn. None of us is immune. Not a single person. And we all die. Every single one of us. We're not immune. And that opens up our hearts to compassion for ourselves. Oh, you'll die. Yeah, yeah. And everybody else in the same boat. And seeing the three characteristics, these three marks of existence, as the mind opens up to awakening, there is nothing to fear. Fear completely goes away. There is nothing to fear. It feels like, you know, you're stepping out of a plane with a parachute 
and you realize the parachute is not working and you're just falling, falling, but then you realize there is no ground. It's empty. There's no ground. There's not self. And there's nothing falling anyway into nothingness. So there's nothing to fear. It's nothingness falling into itself. There's nothing to fear. In other words, it's perfection falling into itself. There's nothing to fear. Not clinging, this is, this is from Majjhima Nikaya, 130.30. Not clinging, they are freed through the destruction of birth and death. Happy, attaining safety, they are released. Here and now, they have gone beyond all fear and hate. They have gone beyond all suffering. That is the definition of awakening. It is said that when one wakes up, there is no fear. There's just a feeling of safety. There's nothing to fear. Because when you really grok, you know, there's an insight that everything arises and passes away. There's nothing to hold on to. There's no point to try. And it's okay when the mind makes complete peace with that. Complete peace. There's nothing to hold on to. There's nothing to fear. And the mind makes complete peace with emptiness, with with not-self. This is a process. This whole body is a process. This is a nature. There's nothing to fear. It's just nature doing itself. Nature doing itself. There's nothing to fear. Things are exactly as they should be. Share another line from a sutta from Sanyutta Nikaya 45.7. The destruction of greed, hatred, and delusion. This is called the deathless. Here's another one. The destruction of greed, hatred, and delusion. This is called the unconditioned. So the unconditioned, the deathless, are not these mysterious, there's not something mystical about them. It's just about this path. It's just about the destruction of these fetters and the mind opens. more I can say, but I think that's enough. So I invite us to close our eyes and I would like to close with the last chorus of the song I mentioned and let it just wash over you as a death contemplation song.
Nothing I have is truly mine. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.